Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a pre-doctoral fellow at the Center for Computational Astrophysics, where I study supernovae and their host galaxies. I'm Melana Rice. I recently obtained my PhD from Yale University, where I studied planetary system dynamics. Woo! Woo! <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Will Saunders. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. You're listening to episode 51, A Picture of Polarization. At first glance, this might seem like a social commentary on the political divide within the U.S., but for that one, you'll have to tune into our other podcast, Voting for Vega. In this <laughs> podcast, we're talking about that very special property of electromagnetic radiation. Now, you may remember our discussion of polarization from episode 39, where we talked about the formation of very young stars. But polarized light can encode information about an enormous range of diverse environments. We'll hear about two of these environments in just a bit. But to understand the discussion, we have to first lay the groundwork and throw it back to our early physics days. So, Melana and Will, what is polarization and what are the different kinds? Polarization is the angle at which electromagnetic waves vibrate. So typically, or at least conventionally, the polarization is referring to the direction of the electric field in electromagnetic fields. So in unpolarized light, there's a roughly equal mixture of polarization in all directions. So light can come from a lot of sources like the sun and many lamps, uh, where it's typically unpolarized and doesn't have a coherent electric field direction. We could also have linear polarization, for example, where all of the fields oscillate in just one direction. Or you could have circular polarization, where the electric field is rotating at a constant rate as the wave travels. So circular polarization can rotate in either the clockwise or counterclockwise direction. What conditions must be met for light to be polarized, and where in the universe can it occur? In order to have the electric fields oriented in a regularized way, in a, in a detectable way, it has to be an emission that is very orderly. So it's not going to happen from, you know, random collisions of electrons. It's going to happen when electrons are moving in a predictable pattern. So for example, if you have a strong magnetic field, you get synchrotron radiation when you have electrons spiraling, accelerating in that magnetic field. And that's a very coherent pattern of electrons, which will emit some polarized light as well as unpolarized or mix of polarizations that we see as unpolarized. Another example is scattering. So actually, we've all experienced this type of polarization. When you're driving on the road after it just rained and the sun comes out, the glare off the road is really bad. And that's because the reflection of sunlight off of the water on the road polarizes the light in a way that, that makes it really receptive to your eyes. And so that's why a lot of sunglasses have polarization built into them in order to remove the light that is polarized from bouncing off of the road. I can add that you could also have polarization that happens when light is just passing from one medium to another. So, for example, when you have light strike water and go into a separate medium, then that is going to change the direction of polarization. So often it tends to be now parallel to the right. surface that mm -hmm. it struck. Mm -hmm. 
And so that's another way that you can get polarization where uh, if light is passing through an atmosphere, for example, that's another medium change that can lead to polarization. Yeah, this is really random, but maybe this is the right place to drop it. While researching polarization for this episode, I found research that was done in 2014 that found that bees can learn different polarization patterns of different species of flowers. So their petals polarize light in different ways, and this can be learned by bees to track what flowers to go to to pollinate. Wow, that's cool. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That is pretty cool. Okay, but we are not bees, so how do we detect polarization? <laughs> we can detect polarization using a polarizer on a telescope, <laughs> so you can actually just add a filter that allows only light with certain types of polarization to pass through. For example, you might have a vertical polarizer and a horizontal polarizer, and you can split your beam of light into two different channels of polarized light so that you can see what the different components are of polarization in one direction versus another. Is the signal of each going to be weaker because you're splitting up the light between polarizers? Yes. It's kind of like when you make a spectrum where each of the individual bins is going to have a lot less light. Here, you're just dividing it into different polarizations instead of a bunch of different wavelengths. So potentially you might need more integration time in order to make polarimetric measurements relative to uh, just regular photometric measurements. If you want to be able to actually see the difference between the two different directions of polarization, you're going to need enough light such that you would be able to see the signal in one polarization as well as a different polarization. So in a sense, by doing that and splitting the beam, you are polarizing the light and then measuring how much ends up in each polarization to see what it started with. Yeah, so you're basically just measuring what component goes into each of these different polarizations and just seeing how much of the original light was polarized in each direction. Mm -hmm. I used to study debris disks back in undergrad, and we observed them in polarization. So the Gemini Planet Imager has one of these polarizers on it, and you can use that to study, in this particular case, the properties of the dust grains that the light was scattered off of. Very cool. That leads pretty naturally into my next question, which is, what can polarization tell us about an object or phenomenon? As I mentioned, polarization can be used in direct imaging. So this is the method that was being used when I was studying these debris disks. And so polarization can be useful to get rid of unpolarized starlight, because starlight is just sort of polarized in all different directions, whereas light scattered off of a planet or debris disk or something else in the system will generally be polarized because it has had some sort of scattering before it actually reaches the viewer. So this is something that's used by the Gemini Planet Imager as well as the Sphere instrument. You can also use polarization to understand, for example, in the cosmic microwave background, how gravitational waves influence the evolution of the early universe. So the cosmic microwave background has two different polarization components called the B mode and the E mode. And about 10% of the light from the cosmic microwave background is polarized. So sometimes not all of your light is going to be polarized, but you can see small differences if you have sufficient resolution. Part of the CMB light is actually polarized, and you can try to understand the early universe using that. Or you can also use polarization to learn about the magnetic fields of objects or interstellar dust that's in between us and whatever object is being studied. I'll also add that spectropolarimetric measurements are used pretty often in supernova studies to try and understand asymmetric explosions relative to symmetric ones. We'll have different polarization patterns that can be picked up. Very cool. And my last question. Are there any upcoming telescopes that are going to be sensitive to polarization measurements? 
Well, one of the most exciting telescopes that is currently being built is the Square Kilometer Array, and that is an interferometry radio telescope. So I'm going to mention that a bit more in my bite, so I'll save the details for now, other than to say that it's a a big, enormous undertaking to create one of the largest and most sensitive radio instruments ever created. Another example is NASA's Imaging X-Ray Polarimetry Explorer, the IXPE. XP? Is there a way of pronouncing that? Ixpe. 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 I don't know. <laughs> oh, they totally blew it on that one. Yeah, but, uh, no idea. <laughs> Ixpe is going to detect polarized light by the way the electrons scatter that are emitted when the photons hit a gas. So all of the light hits this gas. Based on the polarization, the electrons emitted in the gas travel in a certain direction. And then they measure the direction and use that to infer the polarization. So it's a little bit of a different method. And what kinds of objects do you usually see polarization in the X-ray? Well, it'd have to be the high energy things that are going to emit predominantly in X-rays. So we're talking about neutron stars, black holes, and pulsars, which are category of neutron stars. Mm, Yeah, that makes sense. Well, this has been an illuminating discussion, but now it's time to hear about how all these pieces fit together in practice. We'll start with Will, who's bringing us an astrobite that I'm stoked about. Get it? Get it? <laughs> Stokes parameters are a way to parameterize polarization. We're not going to cover them in this episode, but Will is going to tell us about how we I- use polarization. I, Q, U, V. Google it. I, Q, U, V. It's fun to stay at the I, Q, U, V. Will is going to tell okay. us about how we can use polarization as a probe of transient events. Take it away, Will. All right. So the astrobite I'm bringing today is called New Radio Source Toward the Center of Our Galaxy. Say what? And <laughs> What was it called again? <laughs> and this was written by Alice Curtin. The paper is by Zetang, Wang, and others, published in the Astrophysical Journal in 2021. Now, let's do a very quick refresher on radio astronomy. Generally, the atmosphere is opaque to most wavelengths, the exceptions being mostly visible light, which is why we can see visible light with our eyes. But the other example is radio, where most radio waves do make it through the atmosphere, so we can do studies of the universe in radio from the ground. And we can also see things in radio that are tough to see in other wavelengths. For example, active galactic nuclei, many of the emissions that are made in the other wavelengths don't make it out of the object and are not detectable. So radio is one of the great ways that we can study these objects. And radio uses this amazing thing called interferometry, which if you really don't understand it all that well, which I don't, is pretty much like magic, (laughs) right? I understand it well enough to talk about it, not well enough to do it, I will say. But the idea of interferometry is you don't need one continuous dish. You can assemble a pattern of antennas in a specific formation and actually make an effective composite dish that gives you really high resolution as long as you space out your antennas properly. Here's a fun fact I bet you didn't know. Antennas is actually the proper plural for antenna only for radio astronomy. Right. Oh, wow. In the same way that dwarf stars, the plural of dwarf is dwarfs only in astronomy. And Mm. when referring to the mystical creature, it's dwarves. (laughs) nice how did we co-opt english like that (laughs) (laughs) that i don't have the answer for (laughs) 
The authors of this paper used the Australian Square Kilometer Array Pathfinder, ASKAP. Now, not to be confused with the Square Kilometer Array because it's not even close in size. The Square Kilometer Array, by being a square kilometer, is a million square meters. But this one, the Australian Square Kilometer Array Pathfinder, is only 4,000 square meters. So it's not on the same size scale. So these are two completely separate sets of instruments, correct? They're separate in the fact that one exists and the other doesn't, right? The square kilometer array doesn't quite exist, but it will incorporate the ASKAP into it. So that's one of its high-resolution nodes. You have to have very close antennas and very far antennas. So those will comprise some of the close ones, and then they're going to keep building to the larger ones. Okay. Where are some of the other planned locations for the other nodes? South Africa is the other major location. It's between Australia and South Africa. The author's looking in the center of the Milky Way using the Australian Square Kilometer Array Pathfinder, detected a new object that has a designation with a bunch of numbers, and it has a variability of a few weeks. Over nine months, they detected it only six times, and things with a variability of a few weeks are kind of rare, so they wanted to follow it up with the Meerkat radio telescope. And this one's higher frequency, so they'd be able to get some different measurements. Just to clarify, this is periodic variability? It's not detected every period, so no. it's We can't say to a high degree of certainty, but it was detected six times in nine months, and their estimates were variability over a few weeks, as I'll explain in a little bit, because the follow-up observations illuminated this some more. So what do we know about this source? What do we know? So there really are a few characteristics they got from the original detections and the follow-up. First of all, it has significant circular polarization and a very high linear polarization. So that's, that's interesting. Not everything in the universe can emit those polarizations, so that limits what it could be. Two, it has a very steep negative spectrum. So that means the flux falls off really quickly as you get to higher frequency. That's characteristic of certain objects. Uh, Three, the flux has a decay timescale of 26 hours in its variability. That's kind of unusual, as I'll explain in a little bit. It kind of rules out a lot of possibilities. And last, Hmm. they found no small-scale variability. So when it's there, it's steady, then it falls off. It's not like varying on a timescale of minutes or hours. So it's not periodic, but every time you do see this signal, it drops off in 26 hours, you said? It's decay timescale is 26 hours, so something like that. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So it, it, it may be periodic, but we're only seeing the high points of its flux because we can't detect it when it's at the bottom. But you said the flux is consistent across a single measurement, right? So like it's fixed and then after 26 hours, it just drops? It decays. So it decays um, over those 26 hours, but it's not doing any variability on top of that. It doesn't have like a little bit of variability superimposed on a larger variability to the best of their detection ability. Aside from the decay variability. Correct. And they detected no emissions other than radio, no infrared, no x-ray, so on and so forth. So very few things can do this. Interesting. What do you think... What did they think it is? Yeah, what do the authors think it is? <laughs> right. Think it is? I, I don't have any clue what this thing is, but the authors, they, they might. So, right, what, what the heck could this be? They went through a number of possibilities and ruled them out. So the first question, could it be a star? Normally, stars don't emit a lot of radio waves. If it were a star, they would have detected X-rays, infrared, something else. So, not a star. Could it be a pulsar? 
Pulsars have steep spectra, so that would check that box, and high circular polarization because of their magnetic field, but there was no sign of pulsing. Pulsars don't just have steady emissions and then gradually fall off over 26 hours. They vary, you know, minutes, seconds, milliseconds. Mm -hmm. Pulsar doesn't make sense. Could it be a supernova, a jet, a gamma ray burst, a tidal disruption event, like a potpourri of possible variables? Um, (laughs) It's a good word. (laughs) Supernova, they ruled out because it decayed too quickly. Most supernova would decay over a period of months, not hours. Doesn't make sense. Tidal disruption event, again, it decayed too quickly for that. I think that would have taken longer. There were no X-rays and presumably no gamma rays. I don't think they can definitively rule that out, but... There's no evidence of X-rays, so there probably aren't gamma rays. So that rules out gamma ray bursts and rules out jets pretty much because they have different spectra. So it's not those things. So what they're left with, and the most likely thing it could be, is this class of objects called galactic center radio transients. And unfortunately, we've entered the zone of naming things phenomenologically, which means we have absolutely no idea what they are. We know they're near the galactic center, we know they're radio, and we know they're transients. But beyond that, we don't have anything to say about them. So you're saying there are more of these things, and we just don't know what they are, but there are a bunch of them? There are three of these things. Oh. Detected by this team? No. Well, maybe. I'm not sure. Detected by someone. (laughs) Right. However, this one doesn't quite align with the other three, but when you only have four, that's not that crazy to say. Some of them have different characteristics than the others. We just don't have a good population sample. But what could it be that's near the center of the Milky Way and emitting in this pattern All we can do is describe what we see. At this point, we can't really say what's actually causing it. Send a space mission. It'll take, what, a billion years. (laughs) (laughs) But we would get there eventually. Eventually, we'll all end up in the center of the Milky Way. Is that how it works? No, it doesn't seem right. (laughs) (laughs) What dynamics class did you take? Well, I mean, in some ways, right, because every object emits gravitational waves. No, that's a really, that's a lame answer. Um, What? (laughs) That is a very interesting paper and a very interesting astrobite, Will. I would be curious to hear more once we have a larger sample size, the extent to which all of the characteristics vary across the full sample. Absolutely. Now, you know what time it is? No, nobody wants to guess. Nap time. (laughs) (laughs) Nap time is after the episode, Melina. It's time for the circularly polarized Stokes Q sound for the asymmetric explosion and magnetic field. Wow. So. I've never heard a sound like that before. Yeah, you you might still not. Uh, I'm going to play this sound.
That's funky. Okay, I know this probably is related to space, but it kind of just sounded like school's out haunted edition. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So that's not what it is. I, I feel that. You know? It definitely had an eerie ambiance to it. It definitely sounded like a clock. It sounded like a clock? There was some interesting ticking and bonging. And so I'm wondering if it's a sonification. <laughs> you're, you're getting into some technical lingo. Where the sonification is designed to sound like a clock. With the bonging? Yeah. So it's something something that's very um, clock-like. Periodic? You know, is it a pulsar? Periodic. Yeah, or like orbits or something. Final guesses. What are we thinking? Something with orbits. It's haunted. It's a pulsar. So, Will was closest here. It is something with orbits. <laughs> you're, you're listening to Machine 9, a handcrafted electromechanical sound instrument that was crafted by Kath LeCouture and Nick Ryan as part of an arts project called Adrift. So, the instrument, and it really is hmm. part music, musical instrument and part astrophysical instrument, tracks the positions of 27,000 pieces of space junk and plays a note as each oh. one passes overhead. Cool. And the pitch of the note corresponds to the size of the space debris. So, wow. uh, from what I could read from the website, you could also, at, for a short period of time, adopt certain pieces of space debris that they were tracking. So Machine 9 would tweet at you every time the debris passed overhead. Does Starlink count? <laughs> Starlink will probably be added if this project is still going on. <laughs> Didn't the solar wind knock out a bunch of them? It did, yeah. Indirectly. So maybe maybe it does count. It, it was not the solar wind directly. I just want to be clear about that. What happens when solar activity increases is it causes the Earth's atmosphere to puff up. So it's atmospheric drag that destroys mm -hmm. the spacecraft. Because right. the solar wind doesn't itself penetrate all that much into the Earth's magnetosphere, but it does create geomagnetic storms. Nice. It's a topic for a different episode. Cool. Does that destroy all satellites? No, not anything in geosync. So only low Earth orbit. The low Earth orbit is mm -hmm. really cluttered right now because we had such a wimpy solar maximum for the last maximum. So there wasn't enough drag to mm -hmm. do this sort of routine clearing out of the atmosphere. Everyone expects the next solar maximum to be bigger. So you should start to see this happen a lot more. Isn't that in like 12 years? The cycle is 12 years, so we're just past minimum, so we're only like four or five years away from maximum. Nice. Oh, okay. I also thought it was interesting, one of the pieces of space debris that was tracked by this instrument was SuitSat, which was a retired Russian spacesuit that had a radio transmitter mounted on its helmet and was launched from the ISS in 2006 to see if we could turn old spacesuits into satellites. Huh. Did it work? Very briefly, the signal was way weaker than people expected, and it burned out pretty quickly. And now it's just out floating Aww. a spacesuit adrift in the atmosphere. Anyway, there are plenty of fascinating Wikipedia rabbit holes for you there. But I will add one last note, that this space sound is from the Data Sonification Archive that was released recently and is curated by Sarah Lenzi and Paolo Cucciarelli at Northeastern University. And if you have some time, I highly recommend heading over there and playing around with some of the demos. Cool. Very cool. Now, let's move on to our next piece. Malena is here to remind us that even if things seem pretty polarized today, it's actually been this way since the dawn of time. Mm, history repeats <laughs> itself. History rhymes. 
The episode I'll be talking about is called Baby Bee Fields from the Big Bang and Beyond, and it was written by Ryan Glantz about a paper by Chet Lidza et al. 2021. This paper is all about trying to solve the question of cosmic magnetogenesis, that is, where magnetic fields came from, when they showed up in the universe, and what the implications are for the fundamental physics of the universe. So we know magnetic fields are everywhere in space. They play a key role in physics at the scale of planets, stars, and galaxies, and beyond. And it's actually kind of a running joke among astronomers that we don't actually know too much about the fundamentals of magnetic fields, which is the point that this astrobite is probing. Could you just give a brief summary for the main theories for how magnetic fields might have originated in the universe? Yeah, there are two key classes of these theories that this particular paper is probing. In the first, which is called the astrophysical scenario, there are small magnetic fields that are created locally around relatively small systems in space. So those are stars, galaxies, on the scales that we're looking at here, those are relatively small. Uh, and they act as the seeds for larger magnetic fields that are built up and transferred across cosmic scales. So we're talking the cosmic web. And then there's also the second class, and that's called the primordial scenario, where a magnetic field is actually seeded in the early universe before structure formation. So here, this is a primordial magnetic field that is produced before stars or galaxies form. And in this scenario, the exact way the field is generated isn't fully agreed upon. It would probably have something to do with theoretical quantum phenomena, so a violation of the fundamental supersymmetries of nature in the early universe, or perhaps the coupling and decoupling of fundamental forces. So a way that we might be able to try to distinguish between these theories is by studying what the signatures would look like for a primordial versus astrophysical field. This is all very theoretical. Uh, it's pretty tough to actually go back and directly see what the origins were of these magnetic fields, but we can try to look at what the actual effect would be of those magnetic fields. How would they evolve over time if they originated in these different ways? So, if the field was primordial, then it should affect the observed cosmic microwave background. It should also affect the exact time of the epoch of reionization, which is the phase transition in the early universe, when the universe switched from being comprised of this kind of foggy, optically thick primordial gas to being transparent and ionized. Recent studies have suggested that primordial magnetic fields could potentially explain the Hubble tension. So, this is this mismatch between the universe's expansion rate when it was measured from the early universe versus the local universe, so magnetic fields might play some role in the Hubble tension. Or they might also explain why the universe is dominated by matter rather than antimatter if you have a primordial magnetic field. So it's kind of an important question. There are a lot of really fundamental implications that you would have if you either had or did not have a magnetic field when the universe was first born. If there is a primordial magnetic field, do we have a sense for its magnitude, or does that depend entirely on the theory for how the magnetic field should evolve with redshift? I believe that these quantum phenomena would suggest some maximum magnetic field strength that you could have, but I don't think it's something particularly well constrained. Sure, sure, makes sense. Based on the title of the astrobite, I'm going to assume they're pretty small and pretty weak, right? Yes, I believe so. So it would start relatively weak, and then it would grow as the universe grows. Sure. Is the field large scale? Are we talking about something that would be uniform across cosmic scale? Or are we talking about a number of small localized fields? I don't think I'm clear on that. 
we're talking about a very large scale magnetic field. So this is the scale of the cosmic web. Ah, uh, okay. And so it would have grown with the universe during inflation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If okay. it existed then. If it was at the time of inflation, then it would have been small scale then. Right, right. That's right. that's what I, that's the disconnect I was seeing. Okay, thanks. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, so Malena, you mentioned being able to potentially distinguish between observational signatures for the two different theories. What observational signatures should we expect? Yeah, so this paper was trying to actually figure out what you would be able to observe and how you could differentiate between these theories. So it's a very simulation-heavy study where they Hmm. created models for all these different types of magnetic fields and said, what is the effect going to be on galaxy clusters, filaments of galaxies, etc.? These authors were looking at how the primordial magnetic fields, if they existed, would affect the cosmic web's temperature, density, and magnetic field strength. The authors tried out four different models. Two of them assumed that the magnetic fields originated during the inflation phase of the universe. So they had a uniform homogeneous field as well as a scale invariant field that had equal contributions from short wavelength and long wavelength light. And then they also had two other models that assumed the magnetic fields originated from a phase transition early in the universe, where a fundamental force could have become decoupled from the other ones. Just to be clear, all of these different models are different models for primordial magnetic fields, right? Yes, I believe so. Okay. So it's just at what point that magnetic fields would have originated. Okay. Yeah, and so the second two set of theories that is related to these fundamental forces decoupling, they had a random non-helical field and a random helical field. So I think that's just the shape of the field that they started out with. And so they found that the inflationary models, the set of the first two, lead to stronger magnetic fields at later times than these phase transition models. So they're trying to distinguish at what point these magnetic fields formed and from what origin. And if you have the inflationary models, then the magnetic fields are actually stronger by several orders of magnitude, and they're also more spatially extended. Comparing the two phase transition models, they saw that helical fields became stronger than the non-helical ones, but the difference was probably not enough to observe. So the main difference is really just looking at these inflationary versus phase transition models that they had. So I haven't actually mentioned polarization at all. (laughs) So this has all been sort of simulation so far. The way that this ties into the theme of our episode is that polarization actually is the way that you would be able to observe these differences. So connecting the simulations to our observational expectations, the authors produced these maps of the expected rotation measure that we should see today from each of these field types. So the rotation measure is the polarization angle, in this case of radio waves, after they've passed through a magnetic field, which will rotate that polarization. So by observing radio waves from sources outside the galaxy, we can see how strong the magnetic fields were between us and the source that we're looking at. So the authors concluded that based on a comparison of their simulations and our current observations, their results are favoring these inflationary magnetic field models where, again, the magnetic fields there originated during the inflation phase of the universe. And so that produces these kind of strong, widespread magnetic fields. There are kind of some caveats here, which is that this, again, is a simplified model. It ignores some processes like 
gas cooling, chemical evolution, outflows from stars and galaxies and black holes. But the authors were able to demonstrate the key differences between the different models of cosmic magnetogenesis and improved data from the low frequency array and from the square kilometer array in the future is going to provide improved constraints to more clearly rule out the more detailed facets of each of these models. And the study still has to be done to determine the predicted observations associated with the astrophysical origin of magnetic fields, right, for comparison? Do you mean to see what observations you would be able to use to distinguish them? Right. So at the very beginning, you talked about primordial magnetic fields versus astrophysical magnetic fields. And this paper was mainly focused on primordial magnetic fields and what you would expect in the way of observables. Right, But to mm-hmm. be able to distinguish between astrophysical and primordial, you would need to do the simulation of astrophysical growth of magnetic fields, produce some observables, and then compare, right? Yeah, and I think that that just wasn't the focus of this study, but that's something you would need to do to say, are these models consistent with any of these primordial magnetic field ideas, or would you need to have magnetic fields just form through seeding of these other objects? Cool. Well, thanks, Valina. That was a really interesting bite. Yeah, it was cool. I don't usually think about magnetic fields much, nor the early universe, but I actually was pretty excited about this bite. It was really cool to read. So Nice. <laughs> they were both really interesting papers. But we're running out of time, so now it's time for our one-sentence summaries. What do you have for us, Melina? Polarization can teach us about the magnetic origins of the universe, telling us where cosmic magnetic fields came from in the first place. Will, what's your one-sentence summary? A detection of a new transient near the center of the Milky Way is likely a galactic center radio transient, but that doesn't mean we actually understand what it is, and it will require a lot of (laughs) follow-up searching to be able to answer that question. Nice. Awesome. Okay, I have lots of questions. We'll see how many we're able to get through before the end of this episode. Number one, in what research fields, in your opinion, is polarimetry most popular? Most popular. Or most common. It's the same question, I guess. (laughs) Well, I think really what polarization tells you most of the time is about magnetic fields. So I think if you care to learn about magnetic fields, you're going to need polarization to do a lot of that work. That's kind of my answer, which spans a lot of subfields. But I think you can study plenty of things and you don't have to get into the magnetic fields for a lot of subjects. So I don't know that it's one wavelength or one type of object. Polarimetry is pretty popular for debris disks. Well. Not that debris disks are the most popular topic, but I think they're great. Are there not <laughs> magnetic fields in debris disks? I mean, there are to the extent that they're surrounding stars, right? And potentially have planets around them. So there is the scattering that's producing the polarization. Right. Yeah, I mean, scattering is usually what produces the polarization. It's just the particles are oriented in a way that reflects the underlying magnetic field. That's why they do the scattering in a way that produces polarization. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'm wondering if maybe debris yeah. disks require a young star with a strong magnetic field or perhaps a, a neutron star or yeah. a white dwarf. I, I'm just, I'm kind of speculating here, but... Usually direct imaging surveys are looking at A stars. So they're usually big, young yeah. systems. So they're looking for the young energy coming off of planets as they're just forming. Usually those surveys are specifically focused on young stars that I suppose would have strong magnetic fields. So that's a good point that mm-hmm. the magnetic fields are really important in those scenarios too. 
There is, I, I alluded to this earlier in the episode, there is a question of to what extent different classes of supernovae are asymmetric in their explosion, and polarimetry can tell you a lot about that. I don't see oh, that data taken a lot, though, and I'm wondering why. Maybe because it just takes a lot of exposure time, and so you can't catch them super early yet. But actually, so 2020 on why, this was a supernova that I wrote a paper on earlier this year, we had polarimetry near peak light of the explosion. And it was really hard for us to say whether it was from asymmetry in the explosion itself or surrounding dust doing the polarization of the light yeah. from the supernova. Mm, right. Right. Yeah. That That's the issue is you're really measuring the intervening dust. So actually, I mean, if you want to study interstellar medium, it's like, yeah, polarization might be one of the best ways to do it because you have an unpolarized light source, which is stars in the background. And you can measure how much polarization comes through. And usually it's very weakly polarized, right. you know, one or two percent. And there you have interstellar medium dust following an, an interstellar magnetic field, perhaps, which is actually the work that was done by the department chair here at BU and put out a huge survey taken over many years of the galactic plane called the Galactic Plane Infrared Polarization Survey, or GPIPS. So this is a huge survey trying to measure interstellar medium and the magnetic fields present in those areas. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense. If you're asking where it's most popular, I think we've given a quite biased view. Probably interstellar medium. <laughs> yeah, agreed. agreed. <laughs> okay, question two. How expensive are polarimetry measurements. We've mentioned that they require more exposure time than regular photometry, but how much more and how accurate can you get in measuring the polarization of light? I mean, if you're splitting the light in half, then you're kind of splitting your signal to noise by that as well, right? Where you're just saying half the light goes here, half the light goes there. So you could just take double the exposure time, I would think, if you want to get two different images. Well, there's a square root in there somewhere. I, it's either yeah, squared or square root Square root of something. N. It's less. <laughs> Poisson, noise. Yeah. If you want to get the same number of photons for each image, but they're polarization images, I think it's just twice as long. If you have the number of photons, your signal-to-noise goes down by the square root of two. Yeah, so your signal-to-noise goes down by the square root of two. But if you just want to get the same number of photons, then you would just yeah. expose twice as long. <laughs> sure. Assuming it's not right. a variable source. <laughs> right. Yeah, so for sources like supernovae, you can't necessarily do that because it's changing, right? So so you can't just say, right. oh, I'll just expose right. longer. But for some sources, you can just expose longer. So, I mean, so yeah, you're right. In some cases, it would be harder to expose. I think the things that are done with polarimeters are not so short exposure anyway. I think they tend to be deep images because you want to collect as much light as possible. Mm -hmm. But... I will say beyond that, you have to build more equipment. So if you're going to launch something into space to detect polarization, it's more weight, it's more expensive, it's more moving parts. Certainly it can be done on the ground, but I don't think the largest infrared visible survey telescopes use polarimetry mostly. I don't think they do. Yeah, I'm also thinking if the cosmic microwave background is polarized at the 10% level, then you need to have sufficient resolution to actually be able to tell that only 10% is polarized and not the rest of it. I think 10% is high. That's true. I guess what I'm saying is you're not going to often have sources where 100% of your light is polarized. <laughs> right. And sure. So right. in order right. to actually pick out the polarization signal, depending on how much of the light is actually polarized, you would need to integrate perhaps much longer. 
Yeah, I think that's correct. Okay, I'm going to try for maybe one more question, and then we'll call it. Okay. Where can you find the most strongly polarized light in the universe, the most weakly polarized light, and are there any regions in space where you would never find polarized light? All right. Uh, I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but magnetic fields are where the most polarized light is. The strongest polarization is going to come from the strongest magnetic field. So it's probably going to be a magnetar, which is a class of neutron star or pulsar, right? I think that's where you're going to find – I mean pulsars can have polarization of 80%. That is not unheard of. So that's close to about the highest that's even possible. That's my answer for the highest. 80% is the highest you can get to? Something like that. Linear, not circular. Okay. This is a cop-out, but the most polarized light in the universe will have come straight through a polarizer on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'm saying. The correct answer. The astrophysical source is your sunglasses. <laughs> yep. Least polarized? I don't know. Stars? There's so much unpolarized light out there. Yeah. Stars. Nice. <laughs> is, is starlight never polarized it can be polarized by intervening matter yeah yeah it's it can never be partially polarized coming from the star itself i mean what would polarize it a dense stellar atmosphere composed of heavy metals doing the scattering i'm not sure it's too randomly scattered in the solar atmosphere well, I have many more questions about polarization, but they're not going to get answered in this episode. So, with that, <laughs> we'll conclude that episode 50. <laughs> We're not going to completely answer polarization in 40 minutes, right? Yeah. Do we ever completely answer a topic? We we talk about it, we share research, we enjoy okay, it, and then okay. we move on to lunch, which I'm hungry for. We have a hearty discussion and we leave with more questions than we went in with. Mm. And maybe a few answers as well. That's a good thing. And that concludes episode 51, A Picture of Polarization. You can find the two astrobytes we talked about today in the show notes. If you find yourself a bit polarized after this episode and you want to share your thoughts, and that's the last time I'll make this joke, I promise, feel free to reach out to us at astrosoundbites at gmail.com. Not about politics, though, please. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Interesting to hear from people. It may not be possible to polarize audio waves, but you can still find them in a variety of different states and environments. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, and Audible, to name just a few. If you liked the show, please tell your friends about us. We have listeners from 55 different countries, but only one galaxy. So reach out to your colleagues from M31 and tell them to tune in. Friends from M31, if you're listening to this, we'd love it if you could wake us up from cryogenic sleep already. I dozed off in a funny position, and a few million years ago, I really started to cramp up. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. It's, it's 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 periodic. It's definitely periodic.